0: Now we're going to look at um, the second half of Revelation 19 and we're going to consider the lessons, the picture of the rider on the white horse. Very, very rich, very rich. Very rich indeed. The rider on the white horse, which is verse 11 (coughs) down to verse 21. Now, just keep your finger in there and turn to Acts chapter 1. There's a reason for this because it'll help us understand a little more of the meaning of the second coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. I want to draw the contrasts firstly before we actually move into the fullness of Revelation 19, to 21. I want to draw the contrast between his first coming into the world and the second, his second coming into the world. Because that will bring out something of the glory of what lies ahead. There's a tremendous contrast between the two events. The two events almost seem so different. They are not, in the sense that they are not unrelated. One is the complement of the other. But there's a lesson that I want to bring out. And let's read firstly in Acts chapter 1. And it will be at verse 9. In verses 6, the verses before, they'd ask the Lord Jesus, they're meeting him now in the resurrection before the ascension, before he goes back to heaven. When they meet him, they ask him if if he's going to restore again the kingdom to Israel. Verse 7, the Lord says, "'It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power.'" And that would be a good verse to keep remembering when you read the book of Revelation. Take care. You don't break the boundaries of that verse. Verse 8, but you'll receive power. You're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Our job is to be busy in the spread of the gospel, watching at any moment, for he may come. And, verse 9, <clears throat> when he had spoken these things, just, just imagine yourself standing there on that mount, a mountain mountainside. When he had spoken these things, when they beheld, as they were watching him, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Well, I think I'd be standing there mouth open just staring, wouldn't you? And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up they couldn't take their eyes off of him this incredible event behold two men stood by them in white apparel which also said ye men of Galilee why stand ye gazing up into heaven now listen this is the point that I want the points come here this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come and I'll put it again in there so that you get the emphasis shall so come again So he's come once he's been with you for 33 and a half years he's come once now he's been taken up and he's going to come again and it's going to be the same Jesus that came first exactly the same Jesus as the same one who's going to come in second But he'll come in like manner, in a similar fashion, not to the way he came the first time, or when he came to be with you this time, he's saying to them, but when he does come back, he'll come in the like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So it'll be different, the way in which he comes the second time. And we're going to start by just considering and contrasting the differences in the two comings. And from it I want to bring out the truth of the fact that it is the same Jesus. He'll come the second time, but there's going to be a difference in his coming. And he'll come in the same manner as which he in which he left them behind. he come in that same powerful way. Whereas in the first coming... He came in the meekness and the lowliness of Jesus the Savior. See, it's it's exactly what Nick read this morning, and I'm glad he did in Isaiah. When the Lord Jesus came into the world and announced his coming, when he he went into Nazareth, into the synagogue, and he read that that prophecy from Isaiah the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to preach the gospel. And it's for the poor, it's for deliverance, it's for the captive, it's for the blind. And it's to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And he never read any more. He stopped. That's where he sat down and started to teach them. Because what was the next week verse? The day of vengeance of our God. Now that is like, you could take the prophecy when he comes back the second time and he'll read it in its fullness. And everything in Isaiah 63 that's been read this morning will be true in that coming day. There will be beauty for ashes. There will be blessing. There will be garments of salvation. There will be joy. There will be rejoicing. But there will be vengeance. There will be vengeance. The day of vengeance of our God. And that is one of the prime differences. But now let's go to Revelation 19. And let's just read it. And I'll spend some time just getting the picture of the whole thing in your mind. Before... Later we will go and just go through verse by verse and meaning by meaning of this incredible picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see him and understand Revelation 19 and 11 and the pictorial representation of him and the truths which are being conveyed, you'll stand back in, in awe and wonder. He, made, he came once as Saviour, but finally he comes as Judge. Yet as he comes in that day, you'll see the fullness of who he is. In the fullness of glory. That's when he'll come. And you'll see that he actually comes as God's prophet, as God's priest, and as God's king to administer God's judgment and justice on a sinful world. That's what you'll see. Because that's what this part of Revelation is about. We've already understood the fall of Babylon, the judgment of God on a sinful society. The remarkable thing about that is it largely implodes and destroys itself because it's so foul and so full of evil that it can't even exist and get on with itself. And it turns on itself and it crashes down. Now in this part of Revelation we're going to see the beast and the false prophet. Those emissaries of Satan where he uses them as his, the principalities and powers of darkness. He's using these means, these images, these people or whatever the beast and the false prophet, these powerful figureheads in order to work out the fullness of evil in a satanic world. That's what the devil is doing. Well, this in chapter 17 is they're going to be brought down. Chapter 20, Satan himself is going to be destroyed and put away. But let's read this incredible picture. Remembering, please, it is a picture, number one. The words are painting a picture. So let it paint it in your own mind as you read it And I'll go through it again and you'll get the picture of it. You must get the picture or you won't get the lesson. Verse 11 And I saw heaven opened. Now just imagine that, all right? Just imagine that. And behold, a white horse. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Just pick up as we're going through the descriptions of the rider on the horse and of what he's doing and what he wears and what he is. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name It's called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it he should smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture or on his garments and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, get that in your mind. Get that in your eyes. Get that in your picture in your mind. A vision, the rider, and the white horse. Verse 17 And I, I saw an angel. Just, just move your gaze to one side a bit. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowl, all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on the And the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken.
1: And with him the false
0: prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he had deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant, the rest, were slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowl, all the birds, the carrion birds... The, the crows and the vultures and all those cre- all those types, they, they were filled with their flesh. There it is. It's very powerful reading, very powerful reading. You've already got half the picture, you've, or a quarter of the picture, there's a, there's a tremendous force in the whole thing. You know, so you divide it up into sort of three areas, okay, you're looking at the top part of the picture, okay and there you see something going on in the heavens and the rider on the white horse is coming out then you look over to the side and standing in the sun notice that clearly seen and with heaven's approval shining on him there's an angel and he's calling to the birds of the air the carrion birds of the air to come and assemble themselves in readiness for the outcome of the battle and then you look down on the lower half and you see what's going on on earth and you see all the armies being assembled, everything that's in opposition to God, led by the beast and supported by the false prophet, and all who've taken the mark of the beast. That is those who've given their allegiance to, to Satan, deliberately done it, refusing the allegiance to Christ. That's what they've done. They've rejected God and rejected his son. And there they are gathering together. Right. Go back again and look at that at the top part of that picture. And how does the how does it start off? How does the painter start? He says and I beheld the heavens open. Now that's incredible in it itself, so powerful. I mean, You just go out there today and there's the blue sky and you just imagine yourself, you just look up there and what would, what would it be if just suddenly you saw the heavens just, the blue just parting like that, opening up the way of heaven, opening up. The blues, or if it was the middle of the night sky and you just saw it, just the blackness just opening up with the brightness of something and then proceeding out of that opening in the heavens that massive opening in the heavens there's a, a rider coming out on a white horse white horse is a symbol of victory and the victor's coming out riding on the white horse this is a spectacular view a rider on the white horse and the heavens itself are open and you look and you, you, you look again and you, you try to see him a bit more closely and he's fearsome. Absolutely fearsome. He's ready to make war. And you try to look a bit closer at his face and you, you're arrested by the fact that his very eyes seem to burn into you like a flame of fire. There's something in there that you. You're reminded of the verse, from whose face the heavens and the earth flee away. And then you think, ooh. Then you look down a little lower from the eyes and you look at the mouth of this rider on the white horse and there's a sharp sword proceeding out of the mouth. It seems to come out of the mouth. I thought it more as being between the teeth, you know, the rider on the white horse. Either way, I don't mind which way you look at it, but the, there's something fearsome about that sharp sword and he's wearing many crowns. I want you to notice that when we deal with that in detail. His garments are dipped in blood. And as you're looking at this and wondering, who is it? And you you see there's a name on his forehead, but you know, you can't quite read it. No man knows that name. You can't quite get the understanding of what is written on that forehead. We'll deal with that later on. It's very beautiful. We're seeing something of the fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not enough, well, you're, you're standing, as it were, amazed at what you're looking at. And trying to grasp the vision and see what it actually stands for and means. And all these incredible signals are coming to you from the eyes and from the head and from the activities, warring and making war. Then behind there comes this mighty army, the whole army of heaven it is. And they're all clothed in white. And they too are riding on white horses. And suddenly the whole sky is filled with something that's heavenly powerful, marvellous, and absolutely mighty. And he's not anonymous, this rider on the white horse, by the way. He's got a name. You might find it hard to read, but he doesn't write incognito, not at all. His name is blazoned everywhere, as we will see when we go through it in detail. And it climaxes in those words, King of kings and Lord of lords. Can you not hear the music of it? and the Messiah, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. You see, there's no mistaking who the writer is. Not at all. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes in the fullness of glory, prophet, priest, and king will see. And the fullness of who he is, and he finally comes to execute judgment. And then you look over to the side there, and you see this angel and he's crying with a loud voice. He's He's quite clear, the sun's on him, he's got heaven's approval shining down on him, there's no two ways about that, everything's fine, everything's fine. God means him to say what he's going to say and he's calling to the birds of the air, come to the battle, because there's going to be a huge feast of flesh for them to eat when this battle's over. That is terrifying. If you haven't seen enough, there, there, now look down on what's going down here on earth. All right? Everywhere there's preparation for battle. The most futile battle that the earth has ever waged against God and against his Christ. But all the kings are there. Oh yeah, the kings are there. Satan's agents, they are there. This beast, right? The brutal figure of Satan's cruelty. And the false prophet, the horrible picture of Satan's subtlety and deception. And then everyone who's given their allegiance to these two, given their allegiance through these two, To Satan himself, they are all there. This is the final battle, as it were, the grand climax of all. All the forces of evil are gathered together now to make war with the armies of heaven led by the rider on the white horse. All right. And the battle rages. Can you just imagine what that must have been like? We're not told too much about the battle. Not really, but what a battle. Those who by false fear, force and fear and stealth and deception, spreading their satanic influence over the entire world, what happens to them? The beast and the false prophet at the end of it cast into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Then all the rest of the people, all the rest, apart from those two emissaries, it says there, The whole of God rejecting mankind is slain by the sword that comes out of his mouth. This is the Lord, strong and mighty. This is the Lord, mighty in battle. Can you imagine the carnage of that scene? Can you not hear the thundering of the hooves? The screams of battle. The cry of the dead. The stench of judgment and blood. And then it's like a video, isn't it? You know, you get to the last picture and it's all silence, as it were. The battle's over now. But what you hear is the call and the screech of those birds of carrion as they fight and quarrel over the flesh of the dead. And in the background, maybe there's that roar of flame of that lake which burns with fire and brimstone into which the beast and the false prophet, alive, are cast. Wow, what a picture. A picture, a pictorial representation of what it will be like when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and takes the world in judgment. It's a scene of conflict. It's a scene of wrath. It's a scene of carnage. It's a scene of judgment, but it's also a scene of tremendous triumph and magnificent and mighty victory. It's both. When you, when you read this, look, part of you is thrilled just to think of the coming into the world again of the Lord Jesus Christ and that blessed and glorious day when he will reign from shore to shore as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are thrilled to think there's going to come a day when evil will finally be put down once and for all, never to operate again. I mean, we're living in days where you get sick of the sin. Pardon me putting it that way. How much more perversion is there going to be? How much more corruption is there going to be? How many more lies are going to be told? How many more people will stand up absolutely false and fake What are we going to listen to in the next three or four months? Lies upon lies upon lies. That's what we're going to do. How much longer will we find truth turned into falsehood and lies turned into truth? And you say, what a day that'll be when sin's finally put away and the whole evil system is finally brought down and the instigators and the perpetrators of that system are finally dealt with. Because that's the scene you've got here. And part of you is thrilled by the whole thing. And then there's a part of you that... That shudders, doesn't it? You've got to shudder when you read this. Because, you see, what you've got here is judgment without mercy. That's what you've got. This is actually justice. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing. People talk to that, I want justice. I tell you what, never, never ask God for justice. Because what you need is mercy. This is justice. That you, as a sinner will be there as part of one of those who's slain by the sword of his mouth. It's true. If you haven't Christ as your saviour, it means you've only got Satan on your side. So don't ask for justice. Ask for mercy. But be sure to ask for mercy now. Because right in this scene, in this coming day, there will be judgment without mercy. And God will have the final say in all things. He did it in the past. He did it at Babel. He did it in the flood. He did it in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he will do it again on a world that rejects his son. That actually refuses the message of salvation. Please don't refuse the message of salvation while mercy is still available. That's the message. A world that will persecute his people and that will choose Satan. He will finally move and have the final word. Now let's go back to the text. you got the setting of it, haven't you? I've got to do this or you'll miss the message of of the pictures. You really will. But you're getting something of what it's all about. And then our text in Acts that we're so looking at is that we're almost like the lens to start our examination of Revelation 19. It says that the Lord Jesus is going to come. Now he is... Coming again, it is. That's the idea. He's come once, and he's going to come again. And there's a tremendous contrast between the two comings. Just as there was such a lovely contrast in our meditation and worship this morning, you saw that the joy of the acceptable year of the Lord, and then the contrast is the day of vengeance of our God. And I want to contrast the two comings, which we'll just start with anyway. Just, Just think about the manner of the coming, firstly. I mean, this is incredible, this in Revelation. Chapter 19. Do you realise that as the heavens open, right, and as the this spectacular event occurs, such a spectacular event that <laughs> that you're left in absolute wonderment because the heavens part, the rider on the horse comes out, and all the armies of heaven come, and you can you can get the picture of what was said in the chapter one of this book in verse seven. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. What a day! Glorious day! That will be spectacular entrance coming again back into the world. And it'll be like the lightning which lightens up the sky from the east unto the west, clearly seen, gloriously displayed. If they say to you, look, you'll have to go out into the desert to see him, don't ever believe that, says the Lord Jesus. You won't have to go to a special spot to see my return. If they say, well, you must go into the chamber because you'll find him in there, don't believe a word of it. I will be seen by all, every eye shall see him, and I will be seen everywhere. You know, when I was much younger in the days of the many prophetic preachers back in the 70s, we were, everybody was excited because back in the late 50s, 60s, television first came to Australia and all the preachers said, now this is how every eye will see him, they'll see him on the TV. I don't think so. God needs no stinking television. Is that part of me? (laughs) To display, display his glory? The heavens shall glow with splendor. They'll part aside and he'll come out in the fullness of glory when Jesus receives his own. And he will, he'll come to bring blessing and he will come to bring judgment. Now you put that in in comparison to the way he came into the world the first time. What is it? Look, it's just quiet obscurity. Isn't that right? You imagine what happened that day up there in Bethlehem. Just a little insignificant village, far away from the scenes of power and pomp and splendor. The Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, may I use the word, slipped into the world, hardly noticed, by the society into which he was introduced. All the angels knew and the shepherds knew, but no, no, you think about it. He didn't come in a public display. He could have come to the palace, you know, because he was born a king. He could have come to the temple, you know, because he was a priest. He could have come to the richest man's mansion because the cattle on a thousand hills were his. But he did none of it. Just coming, just coming to poverty and to obscurity One night, the babe was born in Bethlehem's manger. I don't think the world press picked it up very well. And I don't think it was all on the internet. No, it wasn't. There was barely a ripple on the society of Bethlehem. Nobody much, they didn't even talk about it in the town, really. Life in Bethlehem just carried on. And the Lord Jesus Christ, silently, how silently, the Christ child was born. I actually love that that, um, hymn, or is it a carol, really, whatever you call it. O Little Town of Bethlehem, How still we see thee lie, Above thy deep and dreamless sleep The silent stars go by, Yet in thy dark streets shineth The everlasting light, The hopes and fears of all the years Are met in thee tonight. How silently, how silently, The wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Isn't that a beautiful contrast? Oh, we thank God for a day (coughs) of salvation. But the truth is, there's a day of coming vengeance. Now just that's just the way he came in. Let's let's take the next step and say, What about the appearances? Can we can we compare those appearances? And what you find in the appearances quite clearly, you've got the babe lying in a manger. You've got him wrapped in swaddling clothes, bound up by the loving hands of Mary his mother, for that nurture and that sense of security and of warmth. And then a boy growing up in Nazareth. Maybe in the carpenter's shop, we don't quite know, but yes. he is a boy. And in Nazareth, what was he? He was in subjection to them, living in that family. And he was growing in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and with men. And you might say, silently, how silently, the purposes and plans of God were being developed in the coming into the world of the one who'd been anointed to preach the gospel. And then in Galilee, the man of Galilee, the stranger of Galilee... The the itinerant rabbi who had no real credibility or credence in the eyes of the experts of the theological colleges of the day. He was just a nobody, just an itinerant rabbi with radical ideas who wandered round in the garments of the common people wearing a, a, a cloak that was homespun, woven from the neck all the way down without one single seam. The garment of the common people that was woven by the loving hands, we do not know. It may have been a Mary, but so different, you see. Can you see the difference in the appearance of the one who's now coming out from the open heavens? Look at the difference. Look at the difference. I mean, look at his head. Just look at his head. When it comes to his in the world the first time, he did have a crown. There was only one, and it was a crown of thorns and was a signal a sig- a symbol of the fact that they rejected him they mocked him they gave him a purple robe to wear and they completely despised this man who was coming in rejection saying we won't have him to reign over us and he was going to die under the curse of god but here here on his head he's got many crowns many crowns you see actually he has conquered already so much that he's a right to take the place of ruler over many provinces. That's the notion we'll deal with later. And the garments that they gave him, they just stripped him of his garments and they divided it amongst themselves as they sat at the foot of the cross, the soldiers, and on that beautiful garment homespun, they, they thought, let's not tear it, but what we'll do is we'll cast lots Yes, they parted my garments among themselves, and upon my vesture did they cast lots, says the very same prophet. All right, that's the bar garments of the Lord Jesus. The swaddling clothes, yes. The garments homespun, yes. And the mockery, yes. Now he comes out, did you notice that he's clothed in a garment that's actually dipped in blood? And on the garment is written the name, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, a garment dipped in blood. The battle hasn't started, but he's fought before. And he has gained a victory through the blood of his cross. This is the warrior of Calvary who broke the power of sin and death and hell by the shedding of his own precious blood. And in the fullness of the victory over sin and death and hell, he now rides forth in glorious display, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's no longer the victim. He is showing himself now as the true victor. Once the victim, now victorious. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. As the, poem, as the hymn writer said. Is that not enough, eh? It's a lot more. It's coming, it's garments. You, you look at his face and you notice those eyes, we mentioned that as we wrote down, didn't we? as we read down a flame of fire, discernment, piercing, fearful from whose face the heaven and earth would flee away, and then you think of the Lord Jesus, do a study yourself, go and do a study of the looks of the Lord Jesus in the gospel, they're absolutely beautiful, the look of his face, just go and look at what those eyes did, alright, do you remember the young man in Mark 10, he came to the Lord Jesus and he said, oh good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, he was so passionate, he was so serious, he was really earnest, and the Lord knew his heart, what he really wanted, but he also knew the poor man, the poor young man, had an incredible problem that he had to deal with. And he knew that it was something that this young man was really going to struggle with, and it was his riches. And you know what it says? And the Lord beholding him, and the word there is, and the Lord looked on him, and he loved him. He loved him. Thank God for a saviour, who came into the world, whose eyes were full, demonstrating the love of God. Remember, he looked on the multitude, he saw them, he says he looked on them and he saw them, a motley crew they were, you know, a bit of everything. (laughs) But he saw them as what? Sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. See the love, you see the compassion, and then you, you see, well, Let's think of Zacchaeus there. He heard that Jesus was passing by and he climbed up into a tree and the Lord came along and what did he do? He came to the bottom of the tree and it says, and Jesus looked up. He looked up for a seeking sinner and the seeking sinner found a seeking saviour and today's salvation came to that sinner's house. Zacchaeus, come down for today I must abide in your house. And the most powerful one I really thought of is It's always moved me greatly. Have you ever thought about Peter the Apostle and what happened to him in the high priest's house? You know what? The Lord had said, Peter, careful now, careful, because before the cock crows, right? Twice you'll have denied me thrice. Peter goes into the high priest's house and like us all, in fear, he denies the Lord. And don't criticize Peter because I defy anybody here that hasn't been in situations where you've hid your colors. It's true, isn't it? We all know Peter. Peter. We stand with him. And finally, when the cock crowed, it says, and the Lord turned and he looked on Peter. There was enough in that look to bring a grown man to tears. Can you work out what that look was like? I mean, can you just think for a minute? What was in that face? Was there a sense of real pain? Was there a sense of compassion? There was something there of Conviction absolutely conviction. but there was a sorrow there that brought a breaking of Peter's heart and really was the means of bringing him back to the Lord. So there it is and you look at his mouth after you've looked at that face, you looked at those eyes and you've considered that head with its crowns. and you listen to the mouth, what does he say? We read it this morning about the prophet, the words of the prophet, when he was in Nazareth and he read that, what does it say? They marveled at the words of grace that proceeded out of his mouth. And I tell you, fellow believer here, there must have come a day in your experience where you couldn't believe what the love of God was offering you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You just marveled at it. And I marvel. That men and women can go on sinning and go on sinning and go on sinning, and they know right from wrong, and they know the way of salvation, but they go on refusing. And he still stands, and with words of grace coming out of his mouth, he says, Come unto me. I'll set you free from your unbelief, from your bondage, from your sin, and I will make you of beauty instead of ashes and I will declare to you the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the mouth of the Lord Jesus. You know, that um, that um, centurion got it right when he just said to the Lord, Lord, just, just speak a word and my servant will be healed. That's all you need to do. I know the power of those words that come out of your mouth. And it's like what you have here, though, out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus, there's coming a sharp two-edged sword. It's not a message of love, of compassion, of mercy, and of grace. Nor is it a message that heals. It's a message that slays and absolutely destroys. We could go on. Do you want to finish the vision? We've looked at his head. Looked at the clothes that he's wearing, the crown that he wears, the crowns that he wears. We're looking then at the words of his mouth. Now think for a moment about the steps of his feet. What are his feet doing? They're treading out the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. That's what his feet are doing. It's the feet of victory, conquest. It's the it's the feet that tread down his enemies. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies. What? The footstool of thy feet. He will put all things under him. But then you think of those feet in the first coming. You think of those feet in the first coming. Treading the pathway all the way from Bethlehem to Calvary. From the cradle to the cross where he would die for sinners and bear their judgment. A pathway where he would become a victim. A pathway that was a true dolorosa. That is... A pathway of anguish and pain and of suffering. That was the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. And he would turn them aside sometimes because, for instance, he would walk some, what is it, 30 miles, 25 miles to go through Samaria. And he was weary with the way that he came. And his feet would have been sore and tired. And he sat just as he was at the well. Why did he do that? Because there was a woman there who was a sinner in the city and he had salvation for her. He had water that was not in the well whereby she would be full and satisfied forever. Those are the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. Wonderful footsteps of grace and mercy finally leading to Calvary. And really and truly the, the names declare it all. In the first coming into the world what was the name that was most prominent? Jesus. For he shall save... His people from their sins. Jehovah the Saviour, that's now. Do you get that, friend? God is offering to us all salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, through the work that He has done Himself alone. And He looks at us all with eyes of compassion, would call every sinner to Himself who doesn't know and has never found a loving Saviour who's fitted them for mansions of glory through the bloodshedding of Calvary, a garment that has been dipped in blood and it's his own blood. In the first coming it was Saviour of the world, in the second it's Judge. Saviour, Judge. Saviour, Judge. First coming, Saviour. Second coming, Judge. We meet him as Saviour or we meet him as Judge in a day when there will be no mercy. That's what we have to understand. Because that's what's being taught here. You see, he comes in the first coming and he reveals that God of love, of mercy, of forgiveness, of compassion. And he did it in a way that God had never been revealed before like that. To be such, who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? You can only say that as an exclamation after you have really seen the Christ who came the first time and died for you on Calvary. On the other hand, he comes a second time and he reveals the holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and the judgment of God. And you stand back and you look at the two comings and you go, whew, they're so different. They're so different. You say, well, this is two different people. Two different people. I want you to go back to that text we read. Do you know what it said? This same Jesus shall so come again in like manner as you have seen him go up this if you want to understand the truth about Jesus I want you to understand the fact that he is saviour and he is judge you must have that there's the two comings there's the two fulfilments you say oh I just love Jesus I'm a follower of Jesus I believe in Jesus I just want to say to you what do you mean? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? That's the point. Is it the one who is both saviour and judge? You say, well, I think we should tell others all about Jesus. Well, what are you going to do? What do you mean? Are you going to tell them that he is saviour and he is judge? Are you going to tell them that the one who came in love and mercy to save will come back in justice and judgment to judge? Or are you going to tell another message? Because, see, we've had a twisted message in the last two decades, a very twisted message, proclaimed by the church as being the gospel. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I'm fearing for you that you're going to get deceived. He said, someone's going to come and give you another gospel, which isn't another gospel, because there's only one way of freedom from sin, and they will preach to you another Jesus, you see. Not that there's two Jesuses, there's only one, but someone represented or purporting they are representing Christ incorrectly. And that's exactly what's happened because we've been more interested in the Saviour than we've been in the, interested in the Judge. Now that's been proved very definitely this week in the history of our own nation, right here. A school stood up, right? And had the courage to publicly uphold the truth of God the Creator. Male and female, created he them recognizing biological gender that's what they did that's what they did there were howls of protest howls all over the place all about acceptance of diversity and discrimination and in no time there was tens of thousands of comments all over the place on, on Facebook and everywhere else this is, I've read them myself now it's a sad indictment of our nature of our nature a very sad indictment the Lord there got out in the public came out in the courier mail declaring himself against it and he calls himself a Christian the Prime Minister stumbled badly. Please God, it wasn't deliberately. That's all I can say. But he was the first to ring in the radio station and said, we won't have that sort of thing being taught in the school. He, was a, he did it. And he wasn't asked to do it. He rang in and did it. So it's, a, it's an indictment of the nation. But even further than that, not one Christian organisation stood up to support that school. Do you realise that? The ACL did. But apart from that, Not one did. There was not one voice from one leading churchman. There was not one voice from a Bible college. There was not one voice from another Christian school that stood up and said, Yes, it's time we stood up for what's right and what we believe. They didn't do it. And sadder still, the bulk of the comments that were written there came from people professing to be Christians. The negative comments, I mean, not the positive ones. The cry was much the same, you know, well, if Jesus is a saviour, he wouldn't do this, this is not love. Jesus was accepting, he was inclusive, he was non-judgmental. He kept company with prostitutes and with sinners, making it sound as though he actually breathed with them and wanting them to behave that way. And this is all about loving our neighbours. In other words, they're saying, Jesus is saviour, he's not a judge. It's another Jesus. Do you understand who Jesus is when you read the scriptures and it's revealed who he really is and all that he really is. And they don't seem to understand that God has committed all judgment into the hand of his son. His Son. He's appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. He invites all sinners to come. Yes. All-inclusive invitation. Sinners may come just as they are no matter how bad. Creed or race or background or faith or whatever. It is absolutely inclusive, the invitation, whosoever will may come. The invitation, yes, but the acceptance. He accepts the sinner who repents. That's who he accepts. There's nobody who will be accepted before God or into heaven who has never repented of their sins because such people will be left with their sin and they'll therefore be left for judgment. I mean, I want to just ask us all this morning, have we really met this Saviour? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the Jesus who actually, in his first preaching, said, repent? In other words, turn from sin. You can't have salvation and sin. You can't have heaven and sin. You can't have the Saviour and sin. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you ever met the Saviour that said to you one day, you must be born again? I mean, that was said said to Nicodemus, a really decent, respectable citizen. The sort of guy that you and I think, whoa, he's a good man. And then the Lord walks up to him and says, excuse me, Nicodemus, you're such a sinner and such a ruin and such a wreck. I can't do anything with you except start again and make you into something new. Have you ever felt like that in the presence of God? Because if you haven't, I want to ask you if you're truly saved. Do you not feel a sense of your own unworthiness of sin and sin? That you've got ashes and no beauty. That you need the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness that's dragging you down to a lost eternity. That's the story of the message here. Like the woman in John 4, you see. You know, she's there and she's, she's a poor soul and she really needs help and she really is thirsty. And the Lord, she says, oh, give me this water. And the Lord says, ah, 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 there's something to be dealt with here. Go and get your husband and bring deal with your sin. Friend, you've got to go to Christ to, to deal with your sin. That's the story then. You've got to hear the Saviour who may look at a, adult, a woman taken in the very act of adultery and say, neither do I condemn thee, but he also says, go and sin no more. This is the story. I just want to leave it with you. Have you met, do you know this Jesus, the one who died on the cross for sin, who faced and bore your judgment, and he took it on himself? Are you amongst those who've turned to God from idols? to await the coming of his Son from heaven, Jesus, our Deliverer, from wrath to come. It's the same Jesus. It's the same Saviour. It's the love of God or the judgment of God. And when you're saved, you thank God that you're going to be safe in that coming day from the wrath of God because of the Christ who died. May God bless us all this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for the time we've had here this morning in meditation, in worship, and the consideration of the Holy Word of God. And we just pray that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, would bless the Word, would use it to encourage us in our faith, to grow in our understanding, to be more and more grateful for so great salvation. And our God and Father, we read it again and we remind ourselves again that it might glorify him. And if any, Lord, have not known the true Saviour, O Lord, use thy holy word, we pray, to bless them this morning. May they come to see the place where burdens are lifted see the one who at Calvary was the place where the judgment was born and the Saviour who in mercy and love can say whosoever will, let him come. Thus we ask thy blessing and pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit might be our blessed portion as we move through the day and the week to come. And until the day shall be that the heavens will part with splendor and the Lord Jesus shall come. Amen.